السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته. Can someone just give me a quick mic check, please? Make sure that you can hear me okay. طيب بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم. الحمد لله رب العالمين. اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين ما بعد. So welcome to um, our lesson, Quranic progression. Uh, we, we're still on Surah Tutin, very towards the very end now of Surah Tutin, the last couple of verses of this Surah of the Quran. And last week, as we were discussing Surah Tutin and, and going through its tafsir, uh, we spoke about uh, the verse in which Allah Subhanahu wa Taala says, "Thumma So just to recap, basically the whole Surah, when Allah Subhanahu wa Taala takes an oath by those four things that Allah Azza wa Jal mentions in the opening three verses of this Surah. And Allah takes an oath by the fig and by the olive and by the mountain of Atur and by the sacred city of Mecca. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives us the jawab al-qasam in verse number four when he says, لَقَدْ خَلَقْنَا الْإِنسَانَ فِي أَحْسَنِ تَقْوِينَ That indeed we created man in the best of form. Right? And that completion of form that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala spoke about, we mentioned that and we went through it in some detail. Last week then, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we then uh, continued with the verses 5 and 6 in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then says, And I believe that I mentioned last week the statement of some of the scholars with tafsir of how you have these two uh, almost diametrically opposed uh, concepts that Allah azawajal mentions. The first is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that we created people in the best of form and fashion and we said that that is in two ways, generally speaking. The first is in the apparent form that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given to us, the blessings that Allah has bestowed within us in our bodies, in our limbs, in our organs, in the way that we behave, in the way that we think, in the way that we act, in the way that our intellect works and all of those other things. And then the second dual meaning of that is the internal, spiritual side, the fitra that Allah has placed within us when we speak about our belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then Allah juxtaposes that with But then man goes back to the lowest of the low. And we mentioned last week the difference of opinion amongst the scholars of tafsir, uh, of, the, of the, the two major opinions that the scholars had of tafsir concerning that whether that returning to that state of being the lowest of the low, whether that was a, a uh, uh, referring to uh, extreme old age being seen or becoming senile, reaching the frailty of old age, or whether it was other opinion amongst some of the scholars of tafsir and the one that was championed by Ibn al-Qayyim, as we mentioned last week, that it's referring to those people being returned to the lowest of the lowest depths of the fire. Right? And we mentioned the difference of opinion concerning that. And we mentioned last week the uh, the evidences that Ibn al-Qayyim mentioned as to why he said that it's the second opinion, that it is the fire. And that's because, as we know, there are plenty of Muslims and many believers that also uh, suffer from old age or suffer from, uh, for example, certain conditions that afflict the elderly uh, more so, such as Alzheimer's and dementia and those types of conditions that then cause a, piece, a person to lose their mental faculties. It's not just something which is restricted to, exclusive towards the disbelievers or the mushrikeen. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when he says, رَدَدْنَاهُ أَسْفَلَ السَّافِلِينَ it seems more befitting and Allah knows best that it's referring to the fire. And also because that then juxtaposes nicely with the meaning of what we mentioned of Ahsani Taqweem as being part of that being the internal state. So as we know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't really judge us in terms of our appearances. Allah doesn't judge a person based upon their appearances, based upon their, their creation. What Allah is praising them for is the ability and the, and the tools that Allah has given to each and every single person to turn towards Allah and worship them, to be able to distinguish between guidance and misguidance, between truth and falsehood, between what is right and wrong. And once they accept Islam, between what is halal and haram, between Allah, what Allah loves and what Allah dislikes. And so they use that then, and then Allah gives them the reward that comes along with that. But those people who reject that, more than rejecting, the physical attributes and the physical skills and abilities that Allah has blessed them and endowed them with, they are also rejecting the fitrah that Allah placed within their hearts when they ignore that inner calling, the inner contentment and feeling that they have. And instead what they do is they turn towards other paths other than the path of Allah Azza wa Jal. It is only therefore befitting and Allah knows best that those people are, are uh, punished or they're recompensed 
at the end of that is that they go to the lowest of the low. Right? And as Ibn Qayyim said, the word Asfala Safilin in the Arabic language, in its customs, in its poetry, in its literature, is never used to refer to it being the uh, elderly age. However, that's not, a, uh, that's not to mean that we can dismiss that point of view. It is a point of view, as we said, that is something which is established in the narrations of the Salaf in terms of their tafsir. And it was chosen by a number of the preeminent scholars of tafsir from amongst them uh, the Shaykh of our teachers, Shaykh Muhammad Al-Amin Al-Shanqidi, Rahimahullahu Ta'ala. Allah Azza wa Jal then makes an exception to that in verse number 6. إِلَّا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِلُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ فَلَهُمْ أَجْرٌ غَيْرُ مَمْنُونَ Except for those people who believe and do righteous deeds, for them there is a reward without any deficiency. And we mentioned last week, uh, we mentioned the, uh, the, the, the statement of some of the scholars such as Al-Hasl al-Basri ta'ala, and it's mentioned by other than them as well, in which uh, some of the scholars of tafsir, uh, such as um, Ibn al-Qayyim ta'ala mentions others as well from amongst them, they refer to this particular uh, verse as being similar to the verse that we find in Surah Al-Asr, which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَالْعَصْرِ إِنَّ الْإِنسَانَ لَفِي خُسْرِ إِلَّا الَّذِينَ آمَنُوا وَعَمِنُوا الصَّالِحَاتِ وَتَوَاصَوْ بِالْحَقِّ وَتَوَاصَوْ بِالصَّبْرِ right? And they say it's very similar to that. Either way, uh, this verse, Allah Azza wa is making an, an exception. And we said that scholars therefore differ depending on their position of verse number 5. Some of them said that in verse number 6, the exception that is being made is that the people of Iman and righteous deeds, the people of the Qur'an, they are saved by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from ever reaching that type of, of, of senile age or frailty of old age. Allah Azza wa preserves them. Whether it preserves them uh, through the fact that even though they reach old age, they still have their mental faculties about them, or whether Allah Azza wa chooses to take them from this dunya before that time, Allah preserves them one way or another. And others from amongst the scholars, especially those who said that no, it's referring to the people of the fire. Verse number five, they said verse number six, the exception therefore is what? The exception is that those people, despite reaching that type of age and state and physical health, where they're unable to worship Allah in the way that they would formally do, Allah Azza wa gives them their complete and full reward. And Allah Azza wa doesn't make it deficient in any way. It's important, uh, brothers and sisters, as we go through tafsir, especially in our particular style of tafsir, which is a very detailed tafsir. And what we're doing is we're breaking down a surah to such an extent that it often takes us, as you can see, three to four weeks, three to four lessons before we complete a single surah. What happens then is when you break off verse five and six or seven, eight, whatever it is, from the previous week's verses and the one before that, it is sometimes difficult to remember the flow. It's difficult to remember where we came and how we progressed to where we are now. And no doubt every verse in a surah is connected to the one before it. So when we now speak, if we were just to start with surah, uh, with verse number 7, if you didn't have in your mind what we've already mentioned in the previous six verses, then you wouldn't be able to make that strong connection and you would suffer as a result. And so it's important to revise this stuff before we come to the lesson. It's important to look over it. And it doesn't mean you have to spend hours and hours, even a five, ten minute glance, which is all that I do over the previous lessons as well. That's all that you need. Five, ten minutes gives you a refresher, allows you to understand where we are, so that when we continue, it's important to do so. And so I will do it every so often, uh, inshallah ta'ala, but it's not something which I will do every single week. That's an onus and responsibility that each and every single one of us has to take. And as we've said before, there's different styles in the way that you seek knowledge, different methodologies. You have the methodology where you read you know, a great amount of, of, for example, hadith or Quran or tafsir or whatever it may be, and you take it in a great big amount. And so it's easier in one sense, but more difficult in one sense. Easier in the sense that you're making a lot of progress, more difficult in the sense that actually what you're extracting and deducting in terms of, uh, of benefits and lessons and so on is not as much because of the time limitation. The other style is, you know, kind of what we did with Tafsir al-Jalalain where you try to read much and then you just make a light commentary as, as much as you can. And then this is a different methodology where you're going into so much detail and so much depth. But one of the downsides to this is that if you're not someone who's on top of your lessons and what you're doing, then you'll find that it's very difficult. And that's why the exams that we have at the end of the year, as you know, um, are also extremely important because they allow you to at least... Uh, make that kind of connection between all of those verses. But even as we go along every week, spending five ten minutes before the class, you know, is the very least that, that we can that we should do. And the scholars of the Salaf Ali Muhammadullah, 
they would often spend their nights awake revising the knowledge that they had sought and preparing for the knowledge that they would seek the following day. And that's why you find those many different narrations of the scholars with the Salaf staying the night awake at night, finding lamps, finding candles, sometimes using moonlight, the light of the moon, because of how poor and how difficult it was for them to afford things like candles and so on, that they would use that light, any light that they could find, any source of light, to be able to revise the knowledge that they had written down. And if you look at the, uh, you know, one of the things that we neglect is the methodology of the Salaf in seeking knowledge, all types of knowledge, whether tafsir or hadith or whatever it may be. There is a methodology that they had. And that methodology is very important, just like as we neglect, for example, in memorization, the memorization of the Qur'an, the methodology of the Salaf in terms of how they used to memorize the Qur'an. And I mentioned some of this in a lecture that I did uh, recently on, uh, it's on YouTube when I spoke about the different methods of memorizing the Qur'an. Many of the methods that we have today actually take their principles from the methodology of, of the Salaf in terms of memorization. So the, the, the scholars of Hadith likewise had a methodology. The scholars of Tafsir have a methodology in the way that they study this. From their methodology is that you make quick revision. And you have to train yourself and get used to the ability to make quick revision. That you can glance over your notes and be able to be ready. Right? One of the things that they used to do is that they would read ahead. So if they knew, for example, that tomorrow, I don't know, for example, you're going to read 10 pages of the next tafsir or whatever, you read ahead. Why? Because then when you're going through the material, it's now not the first time that you've come across it, but it's something which you already are familiar with and so it makes it easier for you to dissect and, and take lessons and learn and follow along as you go. So we're on verse number 7 inshallah ta'ala today and that is the statement of Allah Azza wa Jal in which he says فَمَا يُكَذِّبُكَ بَعْدُ بِالدِّينَ فَمَا يُكَذِّبُكَ بَعْدُ بِالدِّينَ Professor Abdul Halim in his translation of the meanings of the Quran he says they will have an unfailing reward uh, after this what makes you meaning man deny the judgment right they have an offending reward that's from the previous verse i don't know why in this particular version that i have on quran.com it's been placed here i don't know if that's in the printed version or if that's just an error here lahum ajrun ghayru mamnun is from the previous verse fama yukadhibuka ba'du bid-din after this what makes you meaning man deny the judgment mufti taqi said so what can make you after all this deny the requital and uh, muhsin khan said then what or who causes you, O disbelievers, to deny the recompense, i.e. the day of resurrection. And Sahih International, so what yet causes you to deny the recompense? Uh, from these translations, and I don't know if you have it open in front of you, but that's uh, something which you can do. Muhsin Khan's is the one that is most interesting that I find. And that's because Muhsin Khan, uh, in his translation of this verse, is mentioning to you the two main opinions of tafsir concerning this verse. And that's when he says, then what, and in brackets, or who? Then what, or in brackets, or who, causes you, O disbelievers, to deny the recompense? Right? And that's because he's actually mentioning to you the differences of opinion. And one of the major differences of opinion amongst the scholars of tafsir in this particular verse was the meaning of the word ma. The meaning of the word ma at the beginning. So when Allah says fa ma, the fa means after this, or then what? And then, or then, rather, after this or then, the ma is where the scholars of tafsir differed. What does that ma refer to? Now, ma in the Arabic language, as we know, uh, can refer to uh, an object, right? When you say, what is this? What is this? It's referring to an object. And normally when you're referring to something that is غير um, aqil, something that is, uh, that is not uh, human, not jinn, not something that has intellect, it is referred to as ma, right? That's what you use the word ma. So you say, for example, ma hada, right? What is this? Meaning the pen, because the pen is an inanimate object, right? What is this? Ma hada, the phone, and so on. And that's how you use it in the Arabic language. If you're talking about an intellectual being, an intellectual uh, thing that you're speaking about, a human, a person, for example, then you would use the word man. Man hada, who is this? So what and who? Now in the Arabic language, the word ma can at some points take both meanings. Ma in its original st uh, st state will refer to what and normally used, be used in inanimate objects. But sometimes the word ma comes in Arabic language with the meaning of men. And one of those examples is in this verse. And that is why there is a difference of opinion. Is it referring to ma or is it referring to men? So 
and Imam al-Bukhari rahimahullah ta'ala in his tafsir of this particular verse in his Sahih, Sahih al-Bukhari, because he has a whole uh, book of tafsir within his compilation of hadith, he says, so then what will make you, what will make you disbelieve that the people will be held to account for their actions? What will make you then disbelieve that the people will be held to account for their actions? And it seems to be there that he chose the word what, right? that the ma refers to ma. But anyway, these are the two, um, the two opinions that you will find. The first, and Imam al-Tabari in tafsir, Imam al-Tabari mentions all of them. The first is that the word ma comes with the meaning men. So the word ma actually means who, right? In this, in this context, it doesn't mean what, but rather who. So if you go back to that Muhsin Khan translation, because he's the only one that actually does both, Everyone else just goes with the what. Um, he says, then what or who causes you to deny the recompense, right? So then on that tafsir, it would be, then who causes you? Not the what, but the who. Then who causes you to deny? And so that's the first position amongst the scholars of tafsir. Then who is it? O Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. after all of these, Imam al-Tabri is saying, this is the first opinion. Then who is it? O Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. after all of these evidences that have been placed upon, uh, placed forth, that would then be able to deny the recompense, meaning the uh, the the uh, the accounting of Yom Al-Qiyamah. Right? So that's the first opinion. So the meme is actually referring to the men. The ma is referring to the men. And who it's referring to is all of mankind. Right? Who from amongst them, meaning who from amongst the human population, the people that the Prophet ﷺ was sent to, who from amongst them can deny this after all of these evidences? What are the evidences? The evidences are the previous six verses of this surah in Surah Tutin. That's the first position. The second position is the position of Mujahid and Al-Kalbi and others. And that is that the word ma refers to ma. So what what is uh, what uh, so the, the translation then would be as as the other uh, translations are, what will cause you then to deny? Right? What is it that will cause you then to deny? the recompense after all of these uh, evidences have been placed before you. And there is a third position that is also mentioned. And that is not with regards to the word ma or men, whether the ma means ma or the ma means men. Uh, it's not whether it's what or who, the word ma, but rather what it's referring to is that the person being spoken to and addressed here is not all of mankind. So what will make them refuse all of this or reject all of these signs? But rather it's referring to the Prophet ﷺ and telling him that he should have no doubt. So it's not telling him to believe because the Prophet also already believes. But it's telling him that he should have no doubt in his mind, no confusion as to the fact that Allah will cause all people to go back to him and that Allah is the most just of all those who judge. And this was reported to be the statement of Al-Imam Qatada, Qatada ibn Di'ama, rahimahullah ta'ala, the famous scholar from amongst the scholars of tafsir and one of the famous students of Anas ibn Malik radiallahu an. And Imam al-Tabari himself though, when he, uh, when he came to make his own position clear in this verse, he chose the word men. He chose the first opinion that the word ma refers to men. So the word ma here means who. Who from amongst these people then can possibly reject these signs that Allah has given and these evidences that Allah has put forth because of, uh, because, how can they possibly deny what Allah has put forth in terms of evidences, in terms of rejecting Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And that's the position that he chose, Rahimahullahu Ta'ala. However, others uh, did not choose that position. Um, and from amongst those people who didn't choose that position from amongst the scholars of tafsir is Ibn Al-Qayyim, Rahimahullah. Ibn Al-Qayyim chose position number two or opinion number two or view number two. And that is that he said that the ma refers to the ma. And he said that what seems to be more apparent here is that who is being addressed are people in general. So it's not the, the Prophet So he doesn't take the position of Qatada in his view, Rahimahullah Ta'ala. But rather what he does is he says that it's being addressed, he's addressing all of mankind, speaking to them. So Allah is referring to us and speaking to us. And that the word mahiya means what, not who. But what is it that will make you deny? Then the many state, the many evidences and proofs that Allah has sent down so that you would still think that you can't be resurrected that you won't be held to account, that you don't think and reflect and contemplate over the beginning of your creation and how you are fashioned 
and how Allah Azza wa Jal gave you all of these abilities and how Allah Azza wa Jal gave you these powers and abilities and then, then how Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala has the, has, has the power to cause you to die, that you will die and that Allah Azza wa Jal, why then can He not bring you back to life? And so this is a position that was taken by Imam Ibn Al-Qayyim Rahimahullah Ta'ala. So to summarize, we have three positions. The third one is of a slightly different issue, it's a slightly different nature. And that is who is being addressed here? Is it the people that are being addressed in general or the Prophet specifically? The third uh, issue or the third opinion refers to that particular issue. And that's the position of Qatada rahimahullah ta'ala. But the majority say that the people being addressed are the humans in general, people in general, not the Prophet specifically. But then they differed as to this word mahya, which shows you how subhanAllah in the Quran, because of its depth and its eloquence and its beauty, Sometimes it is such a simple letter of the Quran, such a simple word of the Quran that changes the meaning that the scholars of tafsir differ over. And that is from the beauty and the depth of the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's why the Quran is amazing. That when you go at, especially when you go into it at this depth, you find that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even to that level of, 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 uh, of precision, you find the scholars of tafsir discussing these issues. What does that ma refer to here? What does that word refer to here? And ma is like one of the shortest, easiest words of the Arabic language. But here, look at how it can change the meaning or change the tafsir. And why the scholars of tafsir then, therefore, chose varying opinions concerning it as well. So some of the scholars said that the ma refers to who? And that's the position that Imam al-Tabri ta'ala chose. And others chose the position of Mujahid rahimahullah ta'ala. And Mujahid rahimahullah is, as we know, the famous and preeminent student of Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah. And that position was chosen by Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala. And it seems to me, and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best, that um, Imam al-Bukhari, as I mentioned to you at the beginning, also seems to lean towards that particular view as well of Mujahid. And as a side point, if you were to read the tafsir, the book of tafsir of Imam al-Bukhari in his Sahih, you will find that actually one of the most common uh, or one of the most frequently quoted scholars of tafsir that he refers to Imam al-Bukhari himself is none other than Mujahid rahimahullah. So he often quotes from Ibn Abbas عنهما, when and where he can but he also often quotes from Mujahid and Mujahid is considered to be amongst the early scholars of tafsir, Imam al-Shafi, Imam al-Bukhari and others from amongst the early scholars would consider him to be like one of the main people that they would refer to. He's like a marjan. He's like the reference point when it comes to tafsir. And that shows you his position, rahimahullah ta'ala. That's why some of them used to say that if there comes to you the, the tafsir of mujahid, fahasbuka bihi. It is enough for you. It shows you the amazing knowledge of that imam and that scholar, rahimahullah ta'ala. So uh, Imam al-Bukhari often refers to his position, rahimahullah ta'ala. Another uh, point where the scholars also differed concerning this particular verse, verse number seven, is the meaning of the word ad-deen, right? The meaning of the word ad-deen. bid-deen. So one position is that it's referring to Allah's command. So therefore, what will make you deny? Uh, what will make you? What's the, the translation being? What will cause you? What will make you deny the command of Allah Azza wa Right, the hukum of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or the command of Allah azza wa jal. And it is said that this was a position that's reported by Ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma. Right, that this is a statement that is attributed to Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhuma. The other position that is reported as being the statement of the likes of Ikrima rahimahullah and others is that the word ad here refers to recompense, refers to yawm al-qiyamah, refers to, uh, it refers to uh, the last day. That's what it's referring to. Right? And that's what it's uh, that's what's being referred to here because as we know from the names of al yawm al-qiyamah or from the, day, the names of the day of judgment is yawm al-deen, right? the word al-deen. And so Allah Azza wa Jal says in, as we know in Surah Al-Fatiha, Maliki yawm al-deen. He is the king of the day of recompense. And so that is yawm al-qiyamah. And so they say that that is the same meaning here. That's the one that was chosen by the majority of the scholars of tafsir and that's what you find in the translations. Uh, at least the ones that I read out, that that seems to be what the translators also then chose in their particular translation. And no one really took the other position that is mentioned here. And this is the position that was also chosen by Imam al-Tabari, that the meaning of the word ad-deen in this verse is referring to recompense, is referring to yawm al-qiyamah, is referring to resurrection. And Sheikh Muhammad al-Amin al-Shanqiti, 
rahimahullah ta'ala, he said something similar. He said that that is because Allah says, Maliki yawmiddin. And so his thing is to make tafsir of the Quran with the Quran, right? Make tafsir of the Quran with the Quran. And so he says that as Allah refers to a deen in the Quran as being Yawm al Qiyamah, then therefore, in this particular reference or in this particular context as well, that is what, is, what it is being referred to. And Imam Ibn Kathir, rahimahullah ta'ala, also chose the same thing. He said, Ba'du bid-deen. He said, Who from amongst you can deny the recompense, meaning your accounting in the next life, and that you will be rewarded or punished accordingly? And that is, and just as you know that that is the beginning, then so for, therefore you know that that is also the end. Right? And that's the meaning of our statement when we say, at times of calamity, or at times when we lose one of our loved ones, and it's such a powerful statement. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi To Allah, we belong, and to Him we shall return. Meaning, from Allah we came, to Him we shall go back. Our beginning was with Allah Azza wa Our end is with Allah Subhanahu wa Taala, as Allah says in the Quran: Minha khalaqnakum wa fiha nuridukum wa minha nuqrijukum taratan ukra. Speaking about the earth. That Allah says, we created you from it, and to it you shall return, and from it you shall come back again. So just as Allah created all of us from our earth, our, our forefather Adam السلام, was created by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in, uh, in, in, in Allah's presence. And just as he was created in that way, then so his children, his offspring, will return to their Lord and Creator subhanahu wa ta'ala at the end of time. And then Allah Azza wa concludes this surah in verse number in verse number eight, and Allah Azza wa says, "Alaysa Allahu bi-ahkam al-hakimin." Alaysa Allahu bi-ahkam al-hakimin. And in the translations that we have here, Professor Abdul Halim says, "Is Allah not the most decisive of judges?" Mufti Taqi says, "Is Allah not the greatest ruler of all the rulers?" Muhsin Khan is not Allah the best of judges, and Sahih International is not Allah the most just of judges and know that the word hakim means both it means a ruler and it means a judge because obviously as we know a ruler one of their main roles in the societies that they rule over and in the communities over which they preside is to actually be judge as well right and that's something which we don't have anymore even in countries where uh, for example there are muslim rulers like kings and so on that actually rule it is very rare for them to actually take the role of judge and to actually sit and, and, and arbitrate between people and so on. It's, things have changed in the way that that is done now. But actually, as we know, if you look back to the time of the Prophet wasallam and the time of the Khulafa and so on, that it was actually the, the Khalifa, right? or in the time of the Prophet wasallam himself, that would not only be the one who is ruling in terms of being the leader of the community, but they would be the judge and they would be the Imam and they would be the Khatib and so on and so forth, right? And that's the way that it was in the time of the Prophet and in the time of the Khulafa. Abu Bakr is the Khalifa and he's the judge and he's the Imam of the Salah. He's the one leading all the Salahs and he's the Khatib on Friday. He's the one giving the Khutbah and he's the one leading the Hajj and he's the one and he's the one doing all of this as well. And that was the role of the uh, of the uh, of the ruler, that they would be ruler and that they would be judge. And that's why in Islamic law, as we know, the Qudat, right, the judges that we that, that are appointed by the leader. Are naibin. They are um, they are taking his position, right? They have they have been made in in essence deputies that that have been appointed to those roles, and their deputization comes from the waliul amr or the leader of the Muslims, and that's why uh, you know even if for example, it's not the case anymore. But just to give a recent example, if for example if you were to go back 40, 50 years, you will actually find recordings in Saudi Arabia where the king, if he came to Mecca or Medina would be asked to lead the salah. So maybe he's there for Jum'ah prayer. And the khatib, the imam of the haram, whoever he is, gives the khutbah. But then when he comes to the salah, he says to him, why don't you lead us in salah? And that's because that's their right to have as the imam. Just as you have the right in your home to be the imam, even if someone comes to you that is more knowledgeable, more learned of the Qur'an in your house, you have more right. As the Prophet told us, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, when he explained the rights of the imam and who has the most right to lead the salah, he told us that it is, أَقْرَأُهُمْ كِتَابِ اللَّهِ the one who is most versed in the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And he said then sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and the one who is and the leader of a household has more right to their household. Meaning that a person, if it's my house and someone comes and they're more knowledgeable than me, they're more well versed than me, they are more uh, able than me to, to lead the salah and so on, I still have more right to lead than they do. Right? Generally speaking. 
And obviously there are exceptions if, for example, a person can't read the Qur'an properly or something. That's a different issue. But generally speaking, I have more right to lead over them. Unless I give them permission to take my place and to lead, right? Uh, but that's the position. And so just as that's the, the, the issue in your home, because you're the sultan, right? you're the ruler of your house, that's the place where you rule kind of thing, then obviously the Amir al-Mu'mineen, the leader of the Muslims and the believers and so on, is the one who rules in the Muslim lands. And so they have that right even more. Right? And that's something which obviously has changed in our time and in recent times as well. Um, but you know, if you go back towards, towards early history and Muslim history, you'll find many examples of this. So the word hakim means both. And so there's not really a difference in terms of, you know, there's not, not really a contradiction between the two. There's not a contradiction between saying that Allah Azza wa is al-Hakim as a ruler or al-Hakim as a judge. And one of the mistakes that we make sometimes is when we don't understand that actually in the Islamic context and in the Shari context, both are actually as one, right? Both, each one is referring to, to both. And that's something which we, should, which we should understand, especially when looking at the, uh, the Shari context of these texts. So, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَلَيْسَ اللَّهُ بِأَحْكَمِ الْحَاكِمِينَ أَلَيْسَ اللَّهُ بِأَحْكَمِ الْحَاكِمِينَ Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala, he says that Allah azza wa jal is saying, is not Allah, O Muhammad, meaning addressing the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, the most deserving of those who rules and the most judge, just of those who judges between his servants. Right? Is he not the one who is most just of those who judges between his servants and the most deserving of those who rules subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's basically the general tafsir that you will find amongst all of the scholars of tafsir. They have different wordings and so on, but generally it is of the same uh, the same ilk or the same meaning and the same words or similar statements as that which is mentioned by Imam al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala. There is an interesting uh, question here that I want to leave you with uh, for research for next week and that is that in uh, in verses like this in which there is a question that is being asked concerning Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and it is a rhetorical question in the sense uh, in the sense of we know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is ahkamul hakimin that Allah azzawajal is the one most deserving to rule that Allah azzawajal is the one who is most just of all judges that there is no greater ruler, that there is no greater judge than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The question is that when verses are like, like this are recited, should a person respond, meaning should they ap- apply in the affirmative in answering the question that, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has placed here? So for example, when Allah azza wa says, for example in this verse, Allahu Should we respond and say yes in the affirmative or in Arabic, bala? Right, which is to affirm what Allah Azza wa Jalla is saying. Allah is saying, "Is Allah not the most just of those who judges?" Should we not then say yes? And if so, right, first, that's the first question: Do we say yes or not? And then the second part of that question is that if we do, then how do we say it? So, for example, if I'm alone and I'm reciting the Quran, how do I say it? And if I'm in salah and I'm behind the Imam, how do I say it? Uh, and you know, or I'm the Imam. I'm 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 reciting. I'm leading the Salah, and I decide to recite Surah Al-Teen. How do I say it? Right. So these are the questions that I that I wanted you to look at, and it's it's um it's an interesting question because this is not the only one, right? As we know, there are a number of examples of this in the Quran. So, for example, when Allah Azza wa says at the end of Surah, uh, for example, Surah Al-Qiyamah, right? Is he not the one then who has the ability to bring back the dead to life? Right? Again, it's a rhetorical question because Allah Azza wa is speaking about his own power and his ability, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we know for sure that Allah Azza wa is the one who has that ability. So therefore, should we reply in the affirmative? Right? And that's, this is what I would like you to look into. And it's an interesting question uh, that, is, that is interesting. And you will find it mentioned in the books of tafsir as well. So it's not just a fiqhi issue. It's not just a random issue. But it's something which obviously occurs in the Quran in a number of places. Or for example, when Allah Azza wa says in Surah Al-Zumar, Alaysa Allahu bikafin abdah, is Allah not sufficient for his servants? Right? And again, it's a rhetorical question in the sense that obviously the believers know that Allah Azza wa is more than enough and sufficient for them and they don't need anyone else. And there is nothing in the heavens or the earth 
that can stand against them if Allah Azza wa is with them. But the question is that how do we respond as a reciter, whether you're reading, reading or reciting by yourself, or whether you're, he- you're hearing it being recited in salah, or you're the imam in the salah and you're reciting these verses of the Quran, how do we respond? Right? That's the question and I hope that that's clear. So that kind of brings us then to the end of the tafsir of this uh, particular surah. Imam Ibn Sa'di rahimahullah ta'ala just to conclude and if there's any uh, questions about Surah Al-Teen you can, you can post them and ask them now but Imam uh, Shaykh Abdul Rahman Ibn Nasr Al-Sa'di rahimahullah ta'ala said that therefore um, that, that the, the hikmah of Allah Azza wa Jal the wisdom of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala dictates that Allah Azza wa Jal when he created creation he didn't just leave them without any guidance he didn't leave them without giving them commands or prohibitions or telling them that they would be rewarded or that they would be punished. And so he is the one who created man in stages. And he's the one who gave to him, and he's the one who gave to them many blessings that he afforded to them that cannot be enumerated or counted. And he is the one who gives them all that they need in terms of being able to live their lives in a way that is not only beneficial for them in this in this world, but more importantly beneficial for them in terms of their return to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Right. And that's a, a very beautiful summary of this surah. And Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala mentions an, uh, an additional point here that I want to just mention to you for your benefit. And that is that he says that some of the scholars of tafsir said that this verse towards end, these two verses that we just did today, فَمَا يُكَذِّبُكَ بَعْدُ أَلَيْسَ اللَّهُ بِأَحْكَمِ الْحَاكِمِينَ are verses that have been abrogated. And they have been abrogated by the verses of the sword, meaning the verses of jihad. Right? When the scholars of tafsir say the verses of the sword, that's what they're referring to, the verses of fighting and jihad. And, say, and so they say that it's been abrogated. Why has it been abrogated? Because these verses are saying that you don't need to worry about them, meaning to the Prophet ﷺ, if they don't believe and they don't accept after all of these proofs and evidences, leave their affair to Allah Azza wa Allah is the one who is the most, the best of all judges, the most fairest of all judges. He will deal with them. And no doubt this is a Makki surah as we mentioned at the beginning of the tafsir of Surah Al-Teen. The Madani verses of jihad and fighting and, and, and so on come many years later as we know in the Medinan period post-Hijrah. It is, the, uh, it is the methodology of a number of the scholars of tafsir and for those of you that went through tafsir al-Jalaleen with us you will remember this because a number of times this would come up where one of the two Jalaluddin's would say in the tafsir, and this verse is abrogated by verses of fighting, verses of the sword, verses of jihad. And I would often stop and say, actually, you know, the, the opinion of the many of the scholars of tafsir is that these verses are not actually abrogated because there is a methodology of some of the scholars of tafsir. There are any of these verses in which there is a, you know, quote-unquote, and I don't think this is the right word, but quote-unquote verses that say that you don't need to worry about them, that, you know, just carry on, ignore them, don't worry about the disbelievers, you know, verses that don't speak about having to deal with them or you can just ignore them and so on and so forth. Even verses that are um, of the nature of, uh, you know, don't harm those who don't harm you and so on. All of those verses, it is a methodology of some, and there are not many, but some are the scholars of tafsir, that generally speaking, all of those verses are mansukha. They are abrogated. What does abrogated mean? Abrogated means that they are no longer applicable in terms of their ruling. You have different types of nasq in the Qur'an and maybe that's one of the specials that we will do because it's a very interesting topic in itself. Verses that have been abrogated. You have verses that are abrogated in terms of the recitation of the verse but the ruling stays. And others that both the recitation and ruling are uh, are lifted. And other verses where the recitation remains but the ruling has been lifted. And so, and there are reasons for each one and wisdoms behind each one. But the point is here that this would be from that third type of category. The verses are still there, they are still recited, they are still part of the Qur'an and, and, and verses that we read uh, as, as part of the Qur'an that we, that we have in the Mus'af al-Uthman but their ruling has been lifted, meaning that they're not applicable, they're not applied, they're not practiced and so these are some examples of them. Some of the scholars have that blanket methodology and they say all of them are mansukha. Imam al-Qurtubi gives that opinion and then he says and others said that they are thabita, that actually no and that there is no contradiction between them. There is no contradiction between them because the fact that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one who will judge them, whether you fight them or don't fight them, it is still the case, even if you were to fight them and, and wage war against them, wouldn't Allah still be 
the one who judges them ultimately? Isn't Allah still the one who will hold them to account on Yawm Al-Qiyamah? And so many of the scholars of tafsir dislike this methodology where you kind of have blanket nasr or blanket abrogation of verses because a number of verses of the Qur'an therefore become abrogated and as we went through Jalalain, for those of you who follow us, you would have seen this, you would have noticed this and I, I pointed out it a few times because it was an issue of methodology as well and so the correct position in this and Allah Azza wa knows best concerning the methodology is that the only reason you go to abrogation is because it is a last resort. Last resort in terms of what? Number one, either we have a very clear uh, tradition and narration from the Prophet saying that it is abrogated. So for example, the verses of the stages of the prohibition of alcohol. We know that that came down in various stages. So in the first stage, Allah Azza wa says that you asked about Al-Khamar and Al-Maysir, قُلْ فِيهِمَا إِثْمٌ كَبِيرٌ وَمَنَافِعُ لِلنَّاسِ Say to them that there is a great sin, but there's also benefit to إِثْمُهُمَا أَكْبَرُ مِنْ نَفْعِهِمَا And the sin is greater than the benefit. That's not an outright uh, prohibition, but it's to show that it's actually something disliked, that you should stay away from it, that there's more harm than there is good. Then we have another stage in the Quran that Allah says, لا تقربوا الصلاة وأنتم سكارى حتى تعلموا ما تقولون Don't approach the prayer in a state of being intoxicated, drunk, until you are able to understand what it is that you are reading. Basically meaning that five times during the day and the night you can't drink because you can't be intoxicated when you pray and clearly you can't just delay the prayer because you're in a state of being drunk. So therefore that's another stage. And then obviously we have the verse in Surah Al-An'am that makes it clear that it is haram. إِنَّمَا الْخَمْرُ وَالْمَيْسِرُ وَالْأَنصَابُ وَالْأَزْلَامُ رِجْسٌ مِّنْ عَمَلِ الشَّيْطَانِ فَاجْتَنِبُوهُ لَعَلَّكُمْ تُفْلِحُونَ Where Allah makes gambling and alcohol a number of things haram and he says stay away from them so that you may attain success. That's a clear abrogation because we have clear indications in the Quran from the Sunnah that that is abrogated and there are stages in which that is done and there are a number of examples of that in the Quran. Otherwise, you only make abrogation in the Quran where there is no other possible outlet, meaning that there's no way to reconcile, there's no way to understand, there's no way to, and abrogation must clearly be where the, the abrogating verse clearly comes chronologically after the verse that's being abrogated. Right? Clearly, otherwise, if you don't know the timeline, then you don't know which one abrogates which one. Right? Why isn't it that these verses abrogate the verses of fighting? Because we know that these are Makki surahs and those are Madani surahs. These verses came first and those came afterwards. And so that's why they take that methodology. So that's important. But as a methodology, it is not a correct methodology. Many of our scholars and our teachers dislike this. And they would say, and Shaykh Al-Thaymeen is from amongst those people who disliked it and, and they would say that you can't just have this blanket kind of policy where you make nasq and, and abrogation of all these types of verses but rather the methodology behind it is that you only do it as a last resort because to say that a, a ruling has been lifted, that it's no longer applicable, that you don't do this anymore is not an easy statement to make and it has obviously real life uh, implications in terms of the way that we practice our religion and the rulings that we take from the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and it's one of the reasons why sometimes people misunderstand the way that these methodologies are taken and, and applied and they then use this as a tafsir saying that number of the scholars of tafsir said that these verses of peace and whatever are verses that have been abrogated they don't apply it's all about fighting and obviously that leads to the problems and the, and the issues that it has led to in our recent history and so that's important to remember in terms as a student of tafsir to understand the methodology of the scholars and to understand where they come from and to understand the approach that they have and to understand whether that is a unified approach or whether it's something that you will find that there is a difference of opinion. And often you will find in a number of these verses especially and these types of things that they are uh, positions that the scholars uh, of more, not, I wouldn't say recent times because the, the Jalalain still live like five, six hundred years ago but I, in more recent in the sense that it's not something which is uh, done earlier, right? You won't find this amongst the early scholars of the Salaf and so on, that they say that it is mansukha, that there is mansukha. And even where they say that it is in certain few instances, and we will have examples of this where some of the companions said that certain verses have been abrogated by other verses, actually many of the companions disagreed with them as well. And a famous example of this is Ibn Abbas, radiallahu anhum, in terms of some of his statements when it comes to the issue of murder that is committed by a Muslim upon a Muslim. Right? And that's a, a very famous example of this, but that's something, inshallah ta'ala, which we will come to, inshallah ta'ala, at its correct time, bithnillahi ta'ala.
Right? And so that's an important issue to remember here. And I only mention this now because Imam Al-Qurtubi mentions this here. And I think it's probably one of the first examples that we've had because most of these surahs uh, don't really speak about any of those types of issues. As we know, these surahs towards the end of the Quran speak more about issues of Iman and so on. And there's not really those types of rulings that are abrogated. But this is perhaps one of the first examples that we've come across so far. And because Imam Al-Qurtubi raised it in his tafsir, I thought that it would be something that should uh, also be uh, mentioned here as well and Allah Azza wa knows best okay so that's the research question I don't think we really have the time now to start with the next surah although I was intending to at least make an introduction to it but inshallah ta'ala maybe we'll leave that for next week and let's just take some of the questions that we have here so Mukhlis is asking should we say na'am at the end of the verse so um, I don't know if you're asking the question to me or whether you're asking what the statement should be in response generally uh, so obviously I've given the research question out right so I'm not going to answer the question as to uh, what it is to say unless you're asking from an Arabic grammar point of view what is the correct uh, correct thing right so when we um, when when uh, in the Arabic language uh, when someone gives you a question that starts with a negative like alaysa or alam the way to respond to it in its affirmative is to say bala. To say na'am actually means to say no. Because that person already started with a negative. So when you respond affirming the negative, you're kind of agreeing to the negative. right? So if someone says, you know, uh, um, I don't know what a good example is. But if you take the one in, in the verse, is not Allah. Right? Is not Allah the most just of judges? And then you say yes, it's as if you're agreeing to the, that Allah isn't. Because you're agreeing to the negative. And that's why in the Arabic language, I mean, now nowadays people do it all the time anyway. They, they say na'am and they actually mean yes rather than, you know, they actually mean uh, the affirmative and not the negative. Uh, because now, you know, like people speak, especially in like everyday Arabic language, that's very common now. So uh, not to confuse you on this issue, but if you're talking, if your question was in terms of just an Arabic grammar point of view and how, and how it should be done in terms of, uh, and actual Arabic, then the way that you would respond to a negative question to affirm it is to say bala, bala, right? And that's what you will find. And, and the word bala comes in a number of places in the Quran, as we know, and in the Sunnah, in a number of hadith as well. But that's because it is actual Arabic. It is actually the uh, fluent or the, the eloquent type of standard Arabic that should be said. And the word na'am actually means no in that context. So if that's what you're asking about, then that's the response. But if you're asking, uh, should we actually respond to the verse? Then that's a research question which I'm going to leave till next week, inshallah ta'ala. Sumira, was there any particular story around the ending of the surah where Allah ends it with this rhetorical question? Not that I know of. Not that I know of. I don't think that there's any particular uh, cause of revelation or reason of revelation or any incident that took place for the revelation of these verses. It is mentioned in the general context of the whole surah, right? So the surah is establishing these uh, evidences that Allah Azza wa has done after taking the oaths and then Allah Azza wa ends by saying to them so what do you have left to disbelieve right and if you do then Allah Azza wa is he not the most judge, just of all judges right is he not the most just of all judges so I don't think that is to respond to a question and sometimes the questions in the Quran are of this nature rhetorical questions that Allah Azza wa puts not because there are questions that have been asked or an incident has taken place, but because Allah Azza wa Jal, when you ask a rhetorical question or you ask a question of this nature, at the very least what it should do is make you think and stop, right? And and, and, and then respond in one way or another, which kind of ties into the research question as well in terms of how it is that we should respond to it. Uh, Sumira, I have heard people apply abrogation to the verses on stoning of the adulterer is this an incorrect application? So that's like a different issue now, right? So the whole thing of abrogation is a long thing, right? And we, an abrogation is, as we, as you know, a whole chapter from the chapters of Usul al-Fiqh. It is something which has a great deal of discussion, and it is a big chapter, it's a major chapter of Usul al-Fiqh, and there's a whole thing of uh, what is an abrogation, and what can abrogate something else, and what cannot abrogate other things, and how is abrogation done, how is it understood, and whatever. It is a very long and 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 and, and uh, you know and an in and depth discussion that you can have if you were to do it in terms of quran it would be very simply just from the purposes of ulum al-quran which is from the sciences of the quran just to understand in the kind of context that we 
touched on briefly now and not to go through the whole usul fiqh discussion which is a whole different chapter and, and that's something which is important but it's something which has a different place and a different time and a different subject that it needs to uh, be discussed in but in, in short your answer would be that it's not a correct ab- abrogation because there's a number of hadith that have been established in the books of the sunnah in which the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam actually stoned right? and that not only them but then his companions after him from the khulafa and so on also stoned and if you want to understand abrogation just generally as a general rule look at the narrations of the salaf in terms of the companions and the khulafa in terms of the rulings that they applied and they didn't apply so if you were to say for example stoning was abrogated then surely the likes of Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman and Ali radiallahu anhum number one would know and number two even if they didn't know for whatever reason they lived at a time when the vast majority of the companions were still living and we're not just talking about young companions we're talking about the major companions the early Muslims surely amongst them there would have been at least even a handful or a few hundred if not all of them that would have stood up and actually spoken out and there are numerous narrations where the companions would do so if one of the other companions, even if he was one of the Khulafa, did something that they knew wasn't from the Sunnah or that wasn't the case at the time of the Prophet they would speak out. Even if it's just an issue where there isn't halal and haram, it's just an issue of following the Sunnah or doing something that isn't the Sunnah. It's not an issue of obligation or prohibition. It's what's better and what's less better. They would still speak and say, actually, that's not the Sunnah of the Prophet That's not the way he did it. And that's because of the firm uh, in love that they had and eagerness that they had in preservation of the Sunnah. And so you have examples of that. So clearly if it was an issue like this or a major issue of inheritance or whatever it may be, then that's something that you would find also. That's a very good qaida, it's a very good principle to remember. If you look through the books of narrations, whether in the, in the books of, of the sunnah, generally of the, of the, of the sitta, of the, of the collections of hadith, because those books will have uh, the narrations of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam what he did in his lifetime but if you go through what is considered to be the Musannafat like the Musannaf Abdul Razak and Ibn Abi Shayba and others in which not only did they gather the hadith of the Prophet Sallallahu but they gathered the actions of the companions that's what's amazing about the books known as Musannafat the Musannaf don't just deal with a hadith they deal with athar narrations of the companions and the tabi'een and they would tell you what they did and especially in the early times of Abu Bakr and Umar and Uthman where the vast majority of the Ummah is still the major companions are still in a very small locality, they're very close to each other and, there, and many of the major companions عنهم, are still alive and well and living and teaching and so on, then you understand therefore what is the position of Ijma' and what, what the companions did and whether there was uh, any difference of opinion, whether people spoke out and so on. And that's a very good qaida and very good principle to remember. And you know, like this is just one of the many examples of how we've lost methodology of studying knowledge, not only in tafsir but in many other things where we have these types of statements come out from people who haven't obviously done that type of reading, right? And if you haven't read those books of a hadith from cover to cover and looked at those narrations, then how can you possibly speak about what the companions did or what was and wasn't the case in the time of the Prophet ﷺ? And you haven't read and studied that for yourself and Allah Azza wa Jal knows best. Okay, so inshallah ta'ala we're going to conclude here. Barakallahu feekum. And inshallah ta'ala I will uh, see you all next week. Wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته